right, all right. Welcome to episode 18 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, I'm broadcasting live from Ock Bay in Juneau, Alaska. And I always give a little bit of a, a weather update, but I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to say I was just talking with my, um, with my partners in this uh, episode about uh, how my time is limited in this house. So as you can see, as you've been seeing throughout the podcast, you know, I have this beautiful backdrop of Auk Bay just outside of Juneau, Alaska. Um, we've been very blessed and privileged to live in a place like this. You know, we have salmon berries and blueberries and raspberries in the backyard, um, huckleberries even. We've got whales swimming by, bears come by once in a while, bald eagles catching fish all day long, uh, river otters, sea lions. It's just been a true blessing to be able to live in a place like this. But unfortunately, um, this door is closing for us and we're going to have to move uh, at the end of July. And so I'm not trying not to take for granted my time here and just even the backdrop I have for the podcast. So a couple more weeks here with this backdrop. Um, Alexa, my co-host and I were just talking about uh, the weather here as well. And it's been kind of cold and chilly, but uh, it's supposed to be super sunny starting tomorrow and uh, I think for the foreseeable future. So hopefully Mother Nature is going to bless us with some beautiful weather for our last month in this house. But anyways, I'm getting carried away and uh, I just want to say this morning I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Alexa. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Alexa. How's it? It's going good. I'm getting ready for the 4th of July festivities coming up. Fun time in Juneau. Um, and then I want to say hi to Tiamui. Tiamui is a MSW specializing in counseling. Um, she's a social worker and researcher based in New Delhi, uh, India. She has been associated with the um, Shakti Shalani. I may have been butchering that word. <laughs> um, an organization supporting survivors of gender sexual violence since 1987 and working with economically and socially uh, marginalized communities for the prevention of the same. Um, Tamoe is now working with children as survivors of gender sexual violence and co um, coordinating the Child Protection Unit, which is a unit offering specialized support to children as survivors of gender sexual violence. Um, she has also worked and researched in rural and urban India um, in the fields of gender, mental health, community development, and other related areas. So her areas of interest include gender and sexuality, trauma-informed care, restorative practices, and child rights, and social and action research. Yeah, so we have a very esteemed guest. And our first interna international guest on the podcast, I was supposed to have, for those of you that follow along, I was supposed to have Xenia from... Um, in, based in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, but I was sick. So this will actually, this is our first international guest. So I'm very excited to talk to uh, Tamoy. Uh, but there's a few things we got to cover first. So like I said, I can't wait to talk story, but um, we've got a few things we got to go over first. Alexa? Yeah. So the critical social worker uh, is supported by the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we want to make it clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, whether by the host, guests, or listeners calling in, do not necessarily reflect the values of the social work department, 
College of Liberal Arts, the University of Alaska Fairbanks, or any of its affiliates. The opinions and ideas shared belong to the speaker alone. Yeah, and that's important for this podcast. You know, we can be opinionated folks, all of us that are going to be speaking on here. You know, we have a lot of life experience, a lot of thoughts and opinions. And so basically the gist of it is, if you don't like what we say, take it up with us individually or as a group on this podcast. Uh, We don't represent the, um, although they support us, we don't represent the University of Alaska Fairbanks or the Department of Social Work or the College of Liberal Arts or any other organization or individual. So if you have an issue with something that we say or you want clarification, um, you can email me at uh, castetler at alaska.edu or what I would recommend is that you just take it up with us in the podcast via the chat or the opportunity to call in later on. And with that being said, Alexa, do you mind sharing our mission statement? Yeah. So the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. Yeah, thanks, Alexa. And one of those underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. We here at the Critical Social Worker believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences. What we want to do on this podcast is to help unfold some of those layers through stories we can learn and grow from. Stories that help build critical consciousness. And for anyone interested in the social work, UAF is one of the top rated online BSW programs and the faculty are great. Um, It's such an amazing program. I have twins and I'm telling you school usually wouldn't sound or fun, but this program, it's great. I love it. All right. And if you want to find, um, if you're interested in uh, UAF social work department, you're interested in, we only have uh, offer BSW. We don't have offer a master's program, but if you are interested, the best way to find us is just to Google UAF social work or look it up on Facebook and you'll find out uh, how to get in touch with us. Or you can also talk to, to me via here on the podcast or email me. Again, my email address is castetler, C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R at alaska.edu. And what about you? Maybe you're tuning in, uh, you know, maybe you're listening a few weeks down the road and you're uh, on Spotify or Apple and you say to yourself, hey, I would like to talk. I'd like to come on this podcast and talk story. I got a, a lot of stories to tell. Well, uh, just make sure you hit me up via my email address or just reach out to me. Uh, somehow you can find us on Instagram under a conscious party. Um, So, yeah, if you're interested, just hit me up. And then if you enjoy The Critical Social Worker, uh, please support us by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And you can also make sure to follow the podcast on Colin. Right on. Good morning, Nico. I see you there. And yeah, Margaret, thanks for the the good vibes on wishing some sun in here. We're going to get it, I promise. Um, And with that being said, I think it's time that we get this conscious party started for real. Hey yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and the Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our story. <laughs> Well, warm greetings, everyone. Warm greetings, family. Welcome to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. 
So here we are embarking on our 18th episode. This was supposed to be the 20th episode, but um, I said I was sick the past few weeks. So I appreciate everybody's patience uh, that's been waiting around for these episodes. So this is episode number 18, and it's a testament to our unwavering commitment to creating spaces for the kinds of critical dialogue that inspire transformative experiences. You know, they say that uh, I was reading an article that <clears throat> uh, 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And out of those 10% left, 90% of those don't make it past episode 20. So we're on 18, a couple more, and we'll get there. Uh, that, what does that do? That puts us in the top 1%, at least as far as longevity goes with uh, podcasts. So looking forward to continuing on. Um, as I was reflecting on today's episode, trying to figure out what kind of story I wanted to tell, what kind of tone I wanted to set uh, to get this episode going, my mind drifted back to some of my formative years as an intrepid social work student, a BSW student. Now, a critical juncture, uh, excuse me, a critical juncture on the journey to a bachelor's degree in social work, a BSW, is the practicum internship. It's a rite of passage that propels students out of the theoretical realm and into the heart of social work agencies, basically practice. So my own journey led me to a place called LEAP, Alternatives to Violence, based in uh, Fairbanks. And uh, I was charged with the daunting task of working with domestic violence offenders. Uh, now, within the walls of this agency, there were narratives etched with the shadows of child abuse, neglect, sexual abuse, assault, basically men leaving their brutal marks on their partners and their children. And these were narratives that would jolt you out of your complacency, that would make it hard to meet the gaze of a man whose misdeeds you've just read about or heard about. Now, as I stepped into this world, I couldn't help but think to myself and wonder, how am I, just a social work intern, going to make these hardened Alaskan men talk about their darkest moments? I said to myself, they ain't going to want to talk to me. Um, why would they have anything to say to me? Uh, yet my journey at this agency through this practicum internship actually proved to be an eye-opener in ways I had not anticipated. As I held space for these men, offering them a listening ear devoid of judgment and unexpected truth unraveled behind the hardened facades that these men were that these men showed or that they uh exposed to most people there were men crying for somebody to listen to them to validate their their existence and their experiences their hardships their own pain beneath the exterior of each offender was a tale of abuse of their own a hardened life deserving in my opinion empathy and compassion now, i want to be clear here this understanding is not an excuse for their actions or for anyone's actions, but it is a window into their realities, into the circumstances that shape them. The trauma passed down from their ancestors, from their parents, their grandparents, sometimes from teachers at boarding schools. The vicious cycle of intergenerational trauma uh, that they were unknowingly continuing to perpetuate. So this realization underscored an urgent need to me. I felt that we needed less blame and more understanding. Again, it's not about absolving anybody of the consequences of their actions, particularly those that harm others that are more vulnerable than themselves. But I think it's about recognizing that unless we address, resolve, and heal this intergenerational trauma, well, those vicious cycles of abuse, they'll continue unchallenged and unabated. And uh, I think that's pivotal insight that I want to bring to today's conversation to set the tone for what we're about to talk about with our esteemed guest, Tan Wu. As we unravel her personal journey into social work, I hope we can explore the power and the, and the necessity of trauma-informed care. So Tan Moy, I was wondering, 
Can you share with us a story of your own, something that led you to this crucial approach of trauma-informed care in your own work and, and research? Did we lose her? You there, Tanmoy? I see her there, but can't hear her. Right. Well, let's give her a moment to try to get back on here, and I'll cut this part of the podcast off when we when we edit it. How's everybody else doing? Just a guess and wandering aimlessly. Um, here we go. Let's talk to Nico for a minute. What's up, Nico? How's it? Hey, how's it going, Professor? All right, it's going good, other than these technical difficulties. Yeah, man. Yeah, stuff. You know, stuff happens. Uh... I did have a question. Uh, you you kind of briefly touched on, uh, you know, being at Leap there for a little bit and working with, uh, you know, men that have been in situations where, you know, they had uh, uh, potentially abused their partners. And, you know, I know a lot of us, you know, pro- well, men and women, I know a lot of us have, uh, you know, uh, beliefs about stuff like that, you know, like beliefs about men who hit women you know, um, child molesters and that type of thing. So I'm curious to know, was that challenging for you um, as a man stepping in that field and dealing with men that were said to, you know, beat on women and hurt kids and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, just at the very beginning, you know, they ask you to, one of the first things that not everyone, but oftentimes when you start at a social work agency, whether as an intern or as an actual employee, you know, they want you to read the files and read about the people that you're working with. And so, oh, you know, I don't care who you are. You know, you read about some kind of sexual abuse or some kind of, uh, you know, like you said, men beating on women or children and whatnot. And that's hard. And, you know, I even worked with the children of some of the offenders a little bit. I was tasked with creating a, a group. And, you know, those kids were had some serious trauma going on. And it was it was it was really difficult. And then there were other situations, you know, where like I'd be working with kids, with the kids and the dad would try to sit outside, right outside the door, you know, as like an intimidating factor trying to listen in. And so there were those kind of things, but, you know, out of all the men, and this goes actually for everywhere I've ever worked, but specifically at Leap, um, I was able to get past, you know, everything that I'd read or heard about someone except for one individual, which, um, he actually, I saw in the paper later on, was running for mayor of Fairbanks, so I don't know what happened with that. I don't know how you get elected mayor when you have a criminal background of abuse. But anyways, this guy was like, uh, everything that came out of his mouth was offensive and hurtful for me. And I'm a pretty thick-skinned individual. You have to say a lot to me, but uh, I think he viewed me as a also a white male, that he could say racist things, racist jokes, derogatory things about you know, other people, especially native folks in Alaska, he thought that he could talk about women like he had power and control and he just had no shame about it. And and that one instance, I had to go to my supervisor and say, like, look, I know you like me and I'm working with the challenging individuals, but as an intern, I don't feel that it should be my responsibility to work with somebody that makes me this uncomfortable. And I had to step away from it. Um, and she she was for the most part, my supervisor was for the most part agreeable about it, but she made me 
like write a letter to the judge based on his actions and stuff. So it was, in some ways it was extremely uncomfortable for me, but um, the other men, you know, like I can think of this guy, this, this tall, he was really tall, broad shouldered guy. And he just got out of prison, had a big beard. And uh, I had read his file um, and he had basically whooped his wife or his, I remember his wife or his partner whooped her ass and whooped the kids, whooped his children's ass, all of them, like uh, just whooped their ass. And uh, I'd been in prison for several years, I think like six years at that point. And this was one of the first ones that I met. And I was like, this guy is not going to want to talk to me. Um, but I got in there and, you know, was doing my duties and trying to chat with him a bit. And he just completely opened up to me and he cry he was crying and he was telling me about, you know, what happened to him as a kid and how like he never wanted to be that when he grew up, but that's exactly what he became. And what it did is it just gave me a window into, you know, not, again, not excusing the person that he had become or the actions that he had, that he had enacted on people that were vo more vulnerable than himself, his own people, you know, his own partner and his own children. But yet it gave me a window into like why he was that way. And it makes sense. And it made me sad that nobody was there to help him when he was a kid or when he was growing up. Um, that he didn't have anybody to talk to. And so that's what I say, like it teach the most that it teaches me is, or the most that it's taught me is that almost everybody needs an ear to listen to. We're human beings, you know, and uh, I know for those of you all that are taking substance abuse with me, one of the biggest things I try to touch on is oftentimes addiction results as a lack of connection. Same thing with abuse and intergenerational trauma and whatnot, I believe, is that it. uh you know, a lot, oftentimes it, it doesn't just stem from abuse, but it also stems from not having somebody to talk to about that abuse, not having anybody to process through and heal. Uh, I talk about grandmother Rita Blumenstein often in class and on the podcast. She says, you know, many people that have been through trauma and whatnot, they have a hole, a H-O-L-E, a hole inside, their, inside themselves. Like, uh, and in order to become whole, H-O-L-E, uh, w h o l e fill the hole to make yourself whole you gotta you gotta fill that hole up somehow that void within yourself and if you never are able to talk to anybody uh it's most likely that you're gonna become exactly w what you experienced as a child uh because you never have any chance to work through it in an intelligent way in a critical way and so so yeah it was extremely hard to answer your question it's a long-winded answer but to answer your question it was really hard, uh, but like I was saying in my little monologue, the unexpected result was I actually built empathy and compassion for those individuals, and I felt that that was more important than the shaming and the blaming that sometimes they try to do at places like that. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question, Nico? Yeah, it, it, it does, Professor, and, you know, I'm, I'm usually able myself to, you know, be kind of biased when it comes to that type of stuff. Um, but more so, or unbiased, but more so my case managers, you know, like I have some male case managers that work for me and, you know, we get veterans that, you know, have just got out of jail for, uh, you know, sexually abusing a kid or dating a girl that was 15 or something like that. And, you know, the case managers, you know, a few of them are, you know, I, I guess what you would call strong males. They were infantry men in the military and stuff like that. And, you know, once they find that out, they're like, I, I don't want to work with him. I don't want nothing to do with them. You know, can you assign them to somebody else? And, you know, I struggle with how to explain how to look past that. 
So, so your, your, your answers was good for me and gave me a little bit more insight of some things that I could say to them when we run into those situations again. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Do you think that maybe, you know, that that kind of work ain't for everybody, that everybody isn't, you know, I don't want to use the word qualified, but you know, their life experience prevents them from seeing folks like that with empathy and compassion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think about that as well. I think, one of the most important things that separates social workers from regular people, if you will, is our, our ability to be unbiased and to work with anyone, you know? So I, I do think about that. And I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think about that as well. You know, it kind of reminds me of, um, I was having a conversation with my mom. Um, and when I was a kid, when I was about 10 or 11, you know, my mom was you know, addicted to uh, crack. Uh, so she used to smoke, you know, crack, run off for days. I had a little brother that was um, probably around six months at this time. From the time that he was six months to he's about a year and a half, um, I was pretty much just left with the responsibility of taking care of my little brother every time she got, you know, high or whatever. Um, so fast forward, you know, uh, I'm an adult. I get out of the military. I find myself abusing substances. Uh, I get myself together, uh, you know, and get sober and clean and all that good stuff. Um, and I remember having a conversation with my mom. You know, I was like telling her that the two things were correlated. I'm like, it's, I, I, I didn't start using, you know, uh, Coke uh, by mistake, mom. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's a learned behavior. You know, it, you using crack had something to do with that. And she couldn't grasp that. She was like, no, I didn't have nothing to do with that. That was your life, your choices, you know. And I say that to say, you know, that that just shows the different thinking in the mind of, you know, somebody that has some skills and some knowledge uh, in, in the social work realm in comparison to your average Joe. She couldn't correlate the two to her. It was just that was my choices. So. So, yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. Some people aren't just cut out for this type of work. You know what I mean? They can't they can't set aside their their beliefs or the way they were raised and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's a good point that you bring up as well, Professor. Yeah, that's hard. You know, I could <clears throat> actually really empathize with what you shared about your mother. Like, you know, I've I'm not going to go into specifics. I don't like to <clears throat> I don't want to put anybody on the spot or anything like that, but. You know, when I've tried to bring up things or talk about things, and I, I've tried to do it in a healing manner, you know, like not as a confrontational or like, hey, this is your fault, but more along the lines of like, we can see why it happened. I can see why I became who I became when I look at the things that I was exposed to as a child, right? It doesn't mean that anybody deserves all the blame for my life as an adult. It just gives us a window into why it happened, right? And uh, I think for us, you know, I, I, Nico, I don't know all of your story and how you got to be the person that you are right now. Um, but I think people like us that go into social work for, for these kind of reasons is that we slowly build up empathy and compassion over time. It's not something that we just like somebody taught us about it. And we're like, Oh, now I empathize with these people. You know, it's the exposure and the reflection. Uh, so, you know, I guess my question to you, Nico, is how did you get to where you are? How did you, did, and even like the situation you mentioned with your mother, did that give you more empathy for her? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I remember many nights, you know, my mom telling me that, you know, she was going to stop using and stuff like that and crying with her and stuff. And then 
only for a few days, you know, a few days to pass and, you know, she'd be doing the same thing again. Uh, so I, I think I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, sound, you know, cliche and say, I just had a passion for, uh, caring for people my whole life. But, uh, but I do believe that like I've always, and, and that might've came from me being exposed to having to take care of my little brother when I was so young. So that, that might've made me compassionate and, you know, kind of like you, you know, when I talked to my mom, it wasn't a confrontational thing, you know, because I reassured her like, wait, hold on, mom. I'm not just saying, you know, all the bad things in my life you contributed to, you contributed to some good stuff too. You know, you gave me the resilience and the strength to overcome because you overcame, you know what I mean? So, so yeah, um, I, I think, you know, being exposed to that, having to take care of a, an infant as a child, um, you know, wanting better for myself and just going through life and seeing people struggle. And once I got myself together, not forgetting what I seen those folks going through and knowing what I needed to get over that hump, you know, it just made me, you know, want to give people that option as well, you know, and maybe some will take it, some won't take it, but, you know, just giving them that option, you know, I, I felt like that was kind of my responsibility to come back and help people. Um, instead of, you know, say I'm good and just continue on with my life. Yeah, for sure. What about you, Alexa? What are your thoughts? So a few things that have started to like come to mind while you guys were talking um, is, uh, so in another class I'm learning about ACEs, right? So the adversity, uh, child, yeah, childhood experiences. And I have a uh, part of my family, I don't want to go into too much detail, but my mother and her sister, um, they had really traumatic upbringings. And um, it's just that generational trauma really came into play with our family. And my parent, my mother and her sister, they didn't use drugs, right? So there was no substances um, involved with that, like their mother um, had struggled with, but there was this emotional neglect kind of part um, throughout their childhood. And it's just interesting to see how um, things that my sisters, so I have three sisters, struggle with compared to um, the four boys that my aunt, that my aunt has. So I think a lot of it with my sisters is we're um, very big in like caring, right? Like always trying to protect people, which can be unhealthy, um, definitely. Um, but with my cousins, they actually turned to substances, so they didn't have like that emotional um, bond because their mom was so closed off from the trauma um, that she endured. And actually too, it's so sad. Um, but two of them ended up overdosing and passing away. And the other two sons um, through like therapy, um, they've been able to kind of see like, Hey, we really lacked that emotional nurture um, from, a, from the mother figure. So it's kind of, how it's going with our family and the generational trauma. And then for me as a mom now, it's being aware of that and through therapy before having kids, like just knowing um, how important that emotional nurture piece from a mother is. Yeah, for sure. How is being a mother? Uh, you said you have twins, right? Yes. Um, boys. So they're 15 months old and they're, um, 
So I absolutely love my kids. It's great. But there's also a part of like realizing, um, going back to my own childhood parts that I never had to think about before having kids. I'm like, wow, man, I want to make sure not to do it that way. But I know that can be kind of unhealthy in ways too. So, um, yeah, I feel like I definitely have, um, a great time to grow in that aspect personally and just watching the little guys grow. It's awesome. Yeah. One of the things, you know, for me as having kids, my kids are six, five and three now. Um, so almost twins, but not quite. But, uh, one of the things that happens is some just casual, you know, interactions with the kids and something will happen and it will take me like vicariously back to my own childhood and it will I'll remember something that I didn't remember. I'll re-remember it, I guess you would say. Um, and it gives me a lot of insight into my own children because I remember feeling a certain way. And I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? Like I'm, even though it's not like super traumatic stuff that, you know, we're talking about with abuse and whatnot, it, it really gives me empathy towards my children. Like allows me to alter my own behavior that I took for granted, you know, that I, I'm just reproducing, uh, you know, like, like we've talked about what I've seen and, and, and experienced as a child. And so I felt like that's one of the, of the biggest blessings of uh, having children is getting to kind of sort through my own childhood in certain ways and be taken back to like what, it, to what it feels like. And I don't know if that happens for everybody, but it's been very transformative and meaningful. Uh, for these uh, formative years, it's very fun, but it goes by so fast and you'll be looking back in a little while and you'll be like, wow, I really, even though I tried not to, I took for granted the, uh, you know, the, the moment in time that I was a part of. It's gone now. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I actually can really relate to that. Um, something very surface. of emotions you're making me feel uncomfortable kind of thing and I remember that which I didn't until I had kids kind of like how you mentioned things get brought up when you have kids um and I think it's cool to just allow them especially as boys like hey it's okay to be sad like we can be sad and work through this these frustrations and um yeah it's everyone's like oh terrible twos are coming and it's like changing it terrific twos man <laughs> I can those blowouts, they can, yeah, we can make them learning experiences for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, you know, with all of my kids, it wasn't the terrible twos, it's the terrible threes. No, oh, man. <laughs> it's terrible, but if you were going to use that word, it would definitely be the threes for for me. The twos were fairly, uh, you know, drama-free. The threes were, you know, they start to find independence and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to do things on their own, which is good in some ways, but it also causes a lot of, a lot of strife and, <laughs> and whatnot. Um, well, this is a very, like I said, this is a very unique episode. I want to invite everybody to participate in the conversation. So um, if you would like to be a part, cue in. And I'm going to uh, see if Nico wants to come in here. to, to I want to invite everybody to participate in the conversation. So um, if you would like to be a part, cue in. And I'm going to... Uh, see if Nico wants to come in here to, to the speaker, if anybody else wants to as well, and let's just talk. Uh, we'll make it a long form uh, podcast and we'll chat about whatever we want to chat about.
And if we get uh, Tan Moy back, then that'll be a blessing. But if not, we'll uh, we'll work through it. So I figured we could just uh, chat about some things. Um, one of the things I see here in the chat, Betty, uh, happy Saturday to you too. She says, uh, caregivers get caught in the cycle. We empathize, we empathize, we strive to help, and we get ca- caught caring for others and not ourselves. And, you know, that's been a theme on this uh, podcast in the past, especially in relation to here in Southeast Alaska, because, you know, one of the ways, one of the main ways that they hire social workers here uh, is from outside. And so they'll offer folks bonuses and them in southeast alaska you know they may not be prepared for the weather is one thing um but also you know these many of the communities here in in alaska in general but southeast alaska have uh traumatic backgrounds have histories full of trauma sometimes unresolved and so basically uh you can bring somebody in from the outside and give them a bonus but then they don't have the resources themselves you know, to take care of their own. And so they're in there, say, say as a therapist, talking to individuals every single day about their trauma and taking that in, but they really don't have an outlet for themselves. And maybe they don't have the necessary vacation time and sick leave and whatnot in order to, to, to take that time for themselves. But basically it's like Betty saying, it's taking all of it in with nowhere, no, nowhere to let it out. Um, nobody to talk to yourself or not enough opportunities to talk yourself. And even if let's say you were a therapist and you had a therapist, you're going to be seeing, you know, 20 to 40 individuals a week and you're going to only see one person for an hour. So it's not, there's no equality there uh, as far as what you're taking in and, and giving back. And another thing, especially that I've learned as a social work professor and as a social worker, but that many, if not most, or a, you know, an extreme level of most social workers, or people that want to be social workers, you know, have problematic backgrounds themselves. And that's what inspires us. Times of time and reflection and whatnot. But um, again, it's a one-way street. And so you're taking in all the, the trauma, transferring it all to yourself. Um, and it has nowhere to go. And so I think even Kaya's comment here runs into the same thing. Kaya says, my mom is an LCSW and she works in the jail. It's amazing the strength she has, she has doing this work every day and listening to these men tell their horrible stories. She's built the same empathy and care for these men as you've mentioned. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Kaya. Um, I wonder, it's too bad we don't have your mom here. I don't want to ask you what your mom thinks or feels, but I wonder how, you know, she deals with all the intake of everything. You know, even a year working with DV offenders was a lot for me or nine months or whatever, however long I was there. And so to do it, like, say, indefinitely as a job for, for I can see how that, especially with sex offenders, can be very challenging. Um, and it's, you know, where does that flow go? Where does the flow of trauma go? Uh, Betty says, I'm mid-divorce, 
with an addict. I've got both kids. I'm, he's in sober living. He's still working and doing well on that front. But I can't, but can't stop the cycle of trying to control us, even via his video visits. Yeah, Ben. See what uh, Alicia has to say. What's up, Alicia? Hi, I accidentally did that, but it's a great conversation. Um, and definitely listening to the caregiver burnout, I can relate to that. And um, I do have to go for the kids, though, so I apologize for interrupting. No worries. It looks like we call her. Let's see if we can get her in. You there, Tamua? Hello? Still can't hear you. Well? And yeah. in regards to uh, caregiver burnout, so, so for, you know, for some folks, you know, they're, they're in those positions where, um, they're essential, you know what I mean? Like if, if they leave, if they leave the shop, then, you know, they, they still get called, uh, when they're away. Um, that necessarily, you know, don't necessarily ever get a break how how can they prevent uh burnout you know and taking in consideration you know their importance to you know the, the operation the mission um and and a lot of times you know supervisors don't 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 look at their employees especially if they're not of, of the social work mentality they don't look at their uh employees like oh they need a break they need a break and and asking for a break can sometimes be viewed as, you know, a bad thing. How do you think it's the best way to navigate that? Yeah, I don't know if there's a best way. And I think it's challenging, you know, especially I'm not sure if you were talking, if, uh, you know, the, the layout of the, the agency you're talking, about, you know, like as social work becomes more and more like professionalized and corporatized, it, uh, you know, you're going to have. That means that you're very likely to have somebody that's creating the policy for your placement or for your for your agency. Is it somebody who doesn't empathize with social workers and they don't understand the level of work that goes along with it and they just see it as, you know, like an hourly an hourly thing that you can bill for, for example. And so that's what I think, even going back to what I'm talking about, South, Southeast Alaska, to me that's one of the main problems is that you have people making these decisions that don't understand social work don't understand clinical social work. And so I think one thing that I would say, and I don't have the exact answer. Positions where, like you said, they're completely essential. And if they're not there, then there's nobody to do the job. Like for example, uh, when I first got into social work, before I ever went to school, I worked at a juvenile treatment facility, which I eventually went on to, to supervise. And um, 
every cycle of kids that would come through there, I would tell myself, I can't leave because these kids need me. I care about them and they care about me. So I can't, I can't quit this job. But if I kept that forever, I'd, the place is closed now, but I'd just be there forever without, you know, uh, improving my own situation or my own life. And so I wish I could offer social workers more power to be able to turn down situations where they're so that they they don't have the space to take care of themselves and they don't want to leave. They're afraid to leave because they feel obligated and they feel responsible for the folks that they work with, for the agency that they're at, if that makes sense. So I guess my answer would be that we should work to change the paradigm as a whole. Does that make sense? All right, Tom Moy, I see we're, we got you back. Can, you, can we hear you? Yeah, yeah. I just uh, don't know, like, suddenly, like, the video went off. Uh, I'm so sorry for the technical glitch from my side. But, yeah, I'm uh, totally here. Um, especially <laughs> when we're, you know, so far away from each other literally probably halfway across the world, almost exactly. Um, did you hear my, my little monologue to you, my story at all? I, I couldn't, I was not able to hear or see you and Alexa, uh, but I could see the uh, messages, the um, dialogues, the conversations that are happening in the chat box. So I could see that. Okay, I'm going to just read my monologue with the question. This is my little story. It's, it's just kind of a monologue slash story. And then that leads into my first question. And we'll try to get started if, as if nothing went wrong in the first place. Um, okay, so this is my little story. It's, it's just kind of a monologue slash story. And then that leads into my first question. And we'll try to get started if, as if nothing went wrong in the first place. Um, okay, so... Uh, let's see. I was talking about, uh, you know, I welcome people to the episode. Um, I talked about, you know, moving forward and it's a testament to our, uh, goal at, uh, here at the critical social worker to create spaces for the kinds of critical dialogues that inform, uh, that inspire transformative experiences. And as I was, re I was reflecting on today's episode when I was writing up this, uh, you know, a little bit of our script, my mind drifted back to my formative years as a social work student. And, uh, you know, one of the most important parts of a uh, journey to a BSW, to a bachelor's degree in social work, is the practicum internship that propels students out of the theoretical realm and into the heart of social work agencies. So my own journey led me to a place called LEAP, Alternatives to Violence, where I was charged with the daunting task of working with domestic violence offenders. Now, within the walls of these agencies were stories uh, you know, that are etched in the shadows of child abuse, of neglect, sexual abuse, assault, basically men leaving their brutal marks on their partners and children. These were stories and narratives that jolted me out of my complacency, things that I took for granted, and they made it hard for me to meet the gaze of the men whose misdeeds I had just read or heard about. And as I stepped into this world, I only could think to myself and wonder, you know, how am I as, as just here as an intern? anticipated as I held space for these men, offering them a listening ear, trying to be devoid of judgment, an unexpected truth unraveled for me and behind 
the hardened facades were men carrying, excuse me, were men craving someone to listen to them, someone to validate their experience, their experiences. Um, beneath the exterior of each individual, use of their own, a hardened life that I felt was deserving of empathy and compassion. But this is where I want to be clear. Uh, this understanding that I had for them is not an excuse for their actions, but it is a window into their realities, into the circumstances that shaped them, the trauma passed down from their ancestors, from their parents, from boarding schools, from their parents, their grandparents, the vicious cycle of intergenerational trauma that they were unknowingly now perpetuating themselves. So this realization underscored an urgent need for me. I felt like we need less blame and more understanding. Again, it's not about absolving anybody of the consequences of their actions, particularly those that harm others, and it's even more particularly about those that harm The cycle of abuse will just continue unchallenged. And so that's the insight that I wanted to bring to this episode, to this conversation uh, with our esteemed guest, Tan Mui, as we unravel uh, your personal journey into social work. I want to explore the power and necessity of trauma-informed care. So Tan Mui, trauma-informed care in your own work and research? Yeah. Um... So I think uh, if I talk about my journey uh, to social work, uh, um, now when I reflect, uh, it would date back to uh, experiences from my childhood, my adolescence, and uh, of course, the adulthood I'm in. And uh, so basically, I was uh, I was quite of a sh- and uh, I, I would not speak much. I, I actually didn't know what to talk, how to talk. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I would literally, like, if there's any guest in my house, I would literally run to the farthest Um, I had my own monologue with myself. Uh, I think every child has. Uh, that is the kind of connection I draw from uh, what I am and uh, uh, like where I am working right now and why am I working in this field uh, is because somewhere uh, down the line while growing I would experience but uh, not be able to maybe communicate uh, think a lot but not be able to communicate
so first uh, if i talk about uh, shakti shalini's work uh, as well i would like to start off with uh, the thing that uh, the um, you know the work uh, and the uh, agency and choice is at the core of shakti shalini's work and um, the uh, goal the ultimate goal is safety freedom and uh, dignity um, of person of any gender and uh, basically um, you know shakti shalini uh, has been working with the survivors and supporting uh, survivors of gender sexual violence since 1987 and uh, how the work of shakti shalini also started was that it started from a movement by two uh, women uh, who uh, lost their daughters uh, in dowdy death uh so um during 80s and 70s dowdy uh, uh was quite of a uh, you know um, big issue in india and uh, even now uh, it is uh, so the the daughters were uh, you know the daughters were burnt alive uh, on the pretext of insufficient dowry and that is when these two ladies they came on the roads they protested uh, they went to court rooms for the justice they talked to media and uh, that is exactly how uh, you know shakti shalini came into being because uh, the women who were experiencing the same form of violence came together they found a space and uh, shakti shalini kind of uh, uh, you know born out of um, a very uh, rooted and grounded uh, grassroots uh, gender equality work that that was started in india um and it has um, i think it, it was during that time you know 70s and 80s it was the just wave of feminism was uh, on the peak and uh, uh through uh, through its uh, you know early years through shakti shalini's early years it has uh, pioneered um, um, in uh, building uh, the anti dowry laws and the domestic violence uh, law that uh, that is currently there in uh, india so uh, now uh, if i work about my work in this organization um so basically uh, we work uh, in prevention as well as in response to gender sexual violence uh, so in prevention we have community outreach we have uh, uh, skills development for combating violence we have activism which is uh, art for activism which acts as healing as well as you know activism uh, and then we also have our response uh, program wherein we have a shelter home so the shelter home uh, the name of the shelter home is pehchan uh, pehchan is a hindi word it means identity uh, and it is a shelter home for uh, women in distress uh, and we have a crisis intervention counseling center and then we have uh, our child protection unit uh apart from that we also have our media outreach and educational enhancement program where in volunteers and interns uh come along with us uh, to work in this cause uh child protection unit uh, was recently launched uh, and uh, the story and the inception uh, goes like uh, you know uh, we were working on prevention we were working on response uh, and uh, 
I uh, like I still remember my mentor used to say that you know uh, all of these projects are so interconnected all of these programs and interventions are so interconnected that uh, it's it's like uh, you know it's it's a uh, it's an ecosystem of empowerment that is how you know we should aim to build the kind of a space and uh, then later on like you know we kind of realized that how do we uh, make the prevention and the response uh, um, uh, come to a full circle of uh, actually uh, you know preventing and responding to the impact of violence on children because uh, we we are working with survivors we are working with people who have caused harm uh, but then what about the reminiscence of that violence uh, that remains with the children who have witnessed it who have lived in the uh, houses where uh, the uh, family members are battling domestic violence um, so uh, then we kind of you know we thought of like you know um, it is really really important to work with this group of uh, children who witness uh, violence uh, who even uh, face direct violence uh, within the families uh, and uh, this has a long term impact on uh, children and um, i mean uh, there has been researches in numerous researches which really really empirically show that um, uh, children who are uh, who have been you know um, uh, children who are uh, who have been you know witnessing violence at their homes um, either uh, somewhere uh, they fall in witnessing violence at their homes um, either uh, somewhere uh, they fall into the uh, cycle of um, uh, i mean they, fo- they fall into the cycle of taking in a lot of violence because violence becomes so normalized for them and uh, can also be someone who might cause harm uh, because that trauma is going unaddressed uh, that impact is somewhere going unaddressed and uh, uh, in india um, somewhere these group of uh, children are uh, structurally unaddressed because uh, like we have uh, our juvenile justice system um, and we have two categories of children there and uh, children in need of care and protection and children uh, in conflict with law uh but uh, even in children in need of care and protection the children of gender sexual violence survivors only come in when they are uh, you know when when there is no pa- parent to take care of them uh so that okay parents are there okay the child has a house uh home then maybe the child is safe so that notion but uh, you know just delving deep into it that the home the child is in what is the kind of environment the child is in um and uh, so basically that is exactly the kind of uh, structural uh, barrier that also uh, we face in somewhere we are uh, now uh, with the launch of our child protection unit we are trying to children of gender sexual uh, violence survivors um and uh, yeah i mean uh, exactly uh, that is uh, uh, the inception and that is how the nuances uh, play play in when we work with this group of children uh when it comes to my role uh well uh, I, my role it stems from building the child protection unit like building uh, the uh, functional systems in the child protection unit uh, the kind of intervention models that has to come in uh, and also uh, it extends to uh, supporting the children directly and working with the remaining caregivers uh, 
because mostly uh, you know we have now started working with uh, the children who are staying with their mothers uh, who are the survivors uh, in our shelter so uh, uh, they are the remaining uh, parent or the caregiver to the uh, child so basically uh, my work extends from building in the system as well as uh, working directly with the uh, children and the caregivers as well um uh one of the biggest challenge that uh, that i face is uh, you know uh, the uh, the work that uh, is required with this group of children has to be specialized has to be uh, um, you know very intensive uh, and uh, Uh, quite trauma intensive work it is because it is not just the trauma of the child but it is also the trauma of the caregiver because you know the caregiver is also the survivor so the caregiver has the uh, identity of uh, a trauma survivor as well as the caregiver and uh, so basically and then the child's uh, you know trauma and the long term impacts or the coping uh, uh, mechanisms uh, that the child uh, forms so working with that as well as the caregiver so uh, it's like uh, it's working with uh, you know um, trying and work with uh, uh, two uh, sets of traumas uh, which are nuanced in uh, their cells uh, which are uh, really uh, intricate in their cells uh, so it is quite intensive uh, and it uh, is human resource intensive work it is um, uh, you know financially intensive work because uh, i mean uh, i am building this unit i have one psychiatric social worker with me along with volunteers uh, i have one permanent volunteer who is working with me and one uh, psychiatric social worker although the team of shaktishalini is uh, so uh, you know, uh, robust that so there has to be a specialized uh, you know team and uh, carrying out uh, such a kind of an intensive work so just right after the launch uh, it's almost uh, like you know a year or so and uh, we have been trying to like um, we have been trying to uh, look for opportunities and otherwise to see that how we can bring in maybe uh, if not uh, that moment if the fund is not there then uh, how are we maybe mobilizing uh, the youth uh, who are really uh, you know into this cause and wants to work uh, on the field uh, directly uh, so we are also kind of working through that lens that if we can mobilize uh, more volunteers and interns to come and work with us to help us build the unit uh, so that is i think one of the most is for us that uh, it's quite a human resource intensive work uh, requires a lot of commitment and so yeah i mean just fingers crossed uh, that uh, through through next year when when i enter next year i have a team with me uh, a full fledged team so yeah now we are just partnering we are partnering with mental health uh, professionals we are partnering with uh, child protection otherwise uh, uh, you know
hoping that uh, we really uh, you know kind of have that kind of resources to build the unit full fledgedly uh, yeah but my, i am all over <laughs> so i'm kind of building uh, the unit kind of doing all the uh, research work as well as i'm also like you know in a joint session with the caregiver and the child so it's uh, i'm i'm just all over <laughs> You know, one of your goals is to make <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the people that you work with feel safe and free. And when you think about like intergenerational trauma, right, if, if we're still uh, immersed or caught up in this cycle of intergenerational trauma or even intergenerational violence, right, then that's what we're not safe and we're not free, right? We're, we're basically in prison. Do you, do you utilize, what specific methods or tools do you utilize to aim to interrupt or, 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 or resolve some of these cases of intergenerational cycles of trauma and violence? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, um, a lot of times uh i mean uh just uh at the very first and foremost uh letting uh you know the person choose maybe as small as where they want to sit uh you know um, uh, if they want the window pane to be open or closed uh i think uh that kind of you know very small little things I would uh, like, you know, mention, like to mention here, because uh, sometimes we uh, get so much into um, the fact that, ki, okay, uh, uh, you know, this is the need of the survivor or the child and, uh, uh, you know, we need to aim to this and uh, uh, we need to fix this, but it is more of creating that safe space uh, first and foremost uh, for them to feel that it is their space, uh, for them to uh, feel that, uh, you know, uh, when you are working with trauma survivors, it is really difficult because it is not just uh, how you feel, it is also physiological. So, uh, you know, it's really, it, and uh, it differs from uh, person to person, it differs from a child to child, uh, that it, uh, you know, everybody has their own pace of feeling safe in a space. Um, so for for an example i i would just uh, maybe talk about uh, one of the child i was working with and uh, um, during the initial times uh, you know i i wouldn't just understand that uh, so basically, uh, it was almost like uh, whenever he would see uh, any food item or any, uh, you know, uh, eatables uh, nearby him. Uh, so uh, he would just run and uh, he, would, he would be very... Uh, he would he would be very hyperactive he would just go run and uh, try to grab that food and uh, you know that kind of like um, you know uh, quote unquote uh, kind of gives people uh, in the outside who are seeing the child from outside uh, a notion that oh okay uh, disruptiveness uh, 
but uh, then when uh, when uh, you know we started working with the child we uh, delved deeper into that uh, uh, you know that whole thing of like uh, you know what what kind of makes him feel safe uh, what kind of makes him uh, you know provides him predictability uh, then we kind of and that is where i talk about the trauma informed lens that uh, then we got to know that uh, you know through through his past experiences that he was uh, deprived of food so much uh, he would only get to eat one one meal a day uh, and uh, he and after that he wouldn't know that when is the next meal coming to him if at all it is coming or not uh, so even if like uh, he is in our uh, shelter home uh, you know the he, he took uh, at least a half of a month to trust that space that okay i will get breakfast okay i will have my lunch okay this is my lunch and this is my share of food uh, and it is not going anywhere so uh, you know uh, that uh, small little detail uh, of
on a day to day basis uh, based on the kind of uh, environment uh, they have been exposed to uh, and uh, give them a safe space uh, to maybe uh, fearlessly share uh, and uh, express process and uh, also heal um, apart from that uh, with regards to uh, like you know uh, when 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 i also talk about restorative practices uh, and the kind of strategies that currently we are using in working with children of survivors along with their caregivers is that uh, we uh, when when a child comes in uh, so we we do the uh, during the intake we just take the you know basic details and we do a self uh, you know safety assessment uh, because they are uh, uh, coming um, you know uh, they are coming from an environment where uh, the caregiver has been uh, subjected to violence and sometimes there are security issues we really need to take care of so we first do the safety assessment and uh, only then we uh, we kind of do the detailed assessment wherein we uh, take the you know take all the histories that are required and uh, and then uh, the detailed assessment like you know that goes on along with the process of working with the child um, and uh, the last part of the detailed assessment is where they draw uh, a home uh, they draw a home which they uh, want uh, the kind of a family that they want and they want to build uh, so uh, it starts from really uh, you know very basic details to uh, something of this sort and it carries forward throughout the process of working with the child and uh, then we kind of make treatment uh, like uh, simultaneously we make the treatment plan uh, for the child and uh, so we have intervention uh, with the child uh, and uh, we have interventions with the remaining uh, caregiver and uh, so basically uh, you know it's it's really important for us to also work with the caregiver uh, while we are working with the child not just in terms of parenting but also caregivers well-being because uh, here through Shakti Shalini's Child Protection Unit, we are kind of trying to interconnect, uh, uh, you know, gender equality uh, and uh, advocate for uh, gender rights as well as, uh, you know, interconnect uh, child protection into that and see how, uh, you know, uh, how we both, how we can ensure both of it. Uh, so. Um, one thing that I really learned from working with uh, the population of the children I'm talking about is that uh, sometimes, you know, the caregivers are uh, not even the biological mothers. Uh, you know, uh, one case was there where uh, the uh, it was the aunt of the child who was forcefully being married to her brother-in-law because her sister eloped. Uh, and uh, ran away so you know in villages in India they have this thing that to uh, maintain the honor of the family so okay there is another unmarried sister so and the there are uh, you know there is a child so the child has to be taken care of so they do not even ask they uh, you know uh, just make the uh, they just made the aunt marry the uh, father and uh, and uh, then and she was very young the aunt was very young and uh, basically you know that um, kind of uh, she suddenly came into the role of a caregiver for the child and uh, the father uh, coming to uh, uh, 
substance abuse and alcoholism here the father uh, was uh, uh, you know um, really heavily dependent on alcohol and he uh, died in an accident and right after his death uh, the family started looking at the aunt and the child as a burden and were not uh, you know just not ready to uh, you know give them food or take care of them otherwise also uh, so they started uh, uh, you know subjecting them to immense violence like physical emotional mental uh, immense violence they started uh, subjecting the child and the aunt uh, um, it was so so that they kind of locked the child and the aunt in a room in a very dilapidated room where they thought that okay if they just remain there for two days three days they will die without food um, and that was the moment when uh, the uh, aunt uh, kind of uh, you know broke the uh, uh, door and she kind of ran off in the middle of the night uh, she boarded a train she did not know where the train was headed to um, and she uh, some somehow she reached to delhi india and uh, that is how she came to our shelter home and uh, uh, so imagine the kind of uh, you know uh, imagine the kind of um, trauma that the child and the uh, caregiver uh, has gone through and now the caregiver has to heal from her trauma as well as the child has to heal from their trauma now the caregiver is someone who was forced to care give the child and now when she uh, you know now when she came out of that place she came out of that bondage and uh, she is going through her counseling she is seeing that there are varied opportunities and she she also wants to dream of a new life for her own self and she loves the kids uh, but uh, maybe she doesn't want to mother them uh so here comes the agency of the survivor as well as you know the best interest of the child uh because the child needs a caregiver the uh, caregiver is not emotionally ready to care give uh, uh is in her own trauma uh and uh, we also need to ma- uh, maintain the best interest of the child and the agency of the uh like you know um, survivor as well so that is uh, when i realized that uh you know how tricky this work can be and uh, how much do we really have to think out of the box go out of the box see that what is the most best possible uh, resort and how the child's agency as well as the survivor's agency is guide where are the agency of both these people are guiding us towards and really being open to uh, the process like even for social workers working in such a kind of a nuanced and very complex kind of a scenarios i i feel that uh, it's so important for us to just be open to the process as well so uh, we kind of try to like you know weave in uh, uh the best possible intervention in the kind of models that we have prepared so so caregivers wellbeing is another first and foremost thing that we really look into when we work with caregivers so we work individually with the caregivers uh, as well as jointly with the children um and uh, and we have now uh, you know we also uh, on a daily basis we work with our own team and the other residents of the shelter home um to understand the uh, you know 
triggers of the child who is staying in that uh, environment and how to respond to a child to uh, when the child is crying or when the child is maybe getting a little dysregulated how do we uh, you know uh, respond to the child and that uh, so many behaviors are not quote unquote behavioral issues but these are just trauma responses and uh, you know how do we really really uh, open a space for them to uh, just let it out because um, that is exactly how they process and they would process and uh, so um, and uh, we we like i said that we work in partnership with a lot of other organizations so we have uh, you know uh, we have partners mental health partners for children and adolescents as well so through our basic detailed uh, assessment and uh, through our own assessment uh, whenever we see that you know there is uh, um, uh, you know honest re- uh, requirement of mental health intervention as well so uh, we also uh, then you know um, take the child for the mental health interventions as well wherein um, they engage into a lot of um, you know uh, a lot of socio emotional work uh, as well as occupational therapy developmental therapy and uh, those uh, kind of services that are being provided uh, as well as we also look into the mental health of the caregivers uh, there also we have you know adult mental health partners as well for with us so these the, the, uh, the, these are the kind of complexities which really come up when we take up a case or when we work with a case and uh, uh, the uh, foundational values that we work with is uh, uh the uh, you know trauma informed uh, and restorative lens uh so till now it is working and uh, I, i i just feel it so dynamic uh, that uh, you know uh, now we have this kind of a model but um, we kind of have to like you know uh, we kind of really have to um, uh be flexible uh with regards to what kind of a need turns up and uh, uh i feel that uh, with time and with uh, a lot of uh, years of experience and everything like uh, the the our model of work or uh, the kind of work that we are trying to uh, the kind of intervention that we are trying to build in um, in intersectioning uh, gender uh, equality as well as child protection uh, it's like ever growing it will keep on uh, adding to our uh, experiences and uh, adding to our interventions as well so yeah yeah thank you for that um so just i'm um, looking at the time and i'm just going to ask you one more question i'll have one more later for you but after this question i'll turn it over to alexa and then we'll turn it over to the audience for just a little bit um but you talked a lot about the circles did you call them restorative circles yeah so i do it's it's basically well i'm a phd student and uh that's my topic of of uh research interest is dialogic talking circles and so i've come oh. across in many different capacities so in in hawaii they call it talking story which is more like you know you, most of the time you'd be in a circle but it can like bounce off of each other they've got philosophy for children they call it p for c where uh, you know you have young children and you give them a a topic and maybe a ball or something and they toss they they say what they want about the topic and then they toss it to another uh student and then we have talking circles which i learned mostly from uh alaska natives here in alaska um but the basic gist of it can be different but the basic gist of it is you know you sit in a circle and you have 
oftentimes it's a talking feather, like a, a feather that they've decorated and beaded, or it could be, sometimes they call it a talking stick, but the gist of it would be that it would go in the direction of the sun. The facilitator would open it up and say what they want, speak from the heart, invite others to maybe say another topic. And then, you know, it would go to the left and you would pass the talking, uh, the talking feather, the talking stick, and everybody can talk for as long as they want about, you know, hopefully about the topic, but they can say whatever's on their heart. And then each individual would go around and you're not supposed to really respond to each other, but instead speak from the heart. And I was wondering if you could just maybe give us a window into what do your circles look like? Do you have a formula for it? Do you, you know, how does it look? How does it go about? How do you go about it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically to start off with, like, uh, just as you mentioned that, uh, you know, there are talking circles, there are sharing circles. Sometimes there can just be a celebration circle, you know, some somebody's birthday is there. So it, it, it can just be a celebration circle and, uh, um, then uh, basically to start off with uh, its community building circles that uh, we kind of uh, are we are kind of designing and uh, therein we have talking and sharing circles mostly and uh, so the kind of circle uh, that uh, we are designing is uh, exactly uh, like you talked about uh, talking feathers so we have we call it a talking piece and uh, we we have a centerpiece as well uh, so the first few circles uh, are about uh, you know, uh, deciding together about the uh, values that, uh, you know, are really important for us uh, to maintain in that circle. Uh, so we kind of come up together, uh, you know, in circle rounds, we kind of talk about the values. And uh, one of the most uh, interesting thing here is that uh, in circles, uh, you know, uh, the circle would go round and round until everybody is so we have like... Uh, um, this is exactly how we have been, we are being trained uh, in uh, facilitating restorative circles that, uh, so we have, uh, uh, do, so for example, I said uh, that, you know, I feel that we should have this value in the circle, uh, but Alexa says that, uh, uh, but uh, maybe I am not okay with this value because I feel that this, 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 and uh, we have rounds of circles uh, so that wherein we kind of like dissect the context from where I am saying that this value is required in the uh, circle so as for Alexa to understand uh, that from where am I coming uh, and then uh, you know we uh, we do not add a value until each and every uh, you know uh, circle participant is okay with the value so it is not about like okay majority are okay then we are keeping the value it is about it really counts uh, each and every individuals um, uh, um, each and um, every individuals agreement to that so these are some uh, small little things which we daily uh, uh, are learning to practice in circles and uh, so that each and every person is understood and uh, being heard uh, and uh, so basically the first few circles are about uh, building values for the circle and uh, then uh, you know we have uh, certain guidelines of like you know just respecting the talking piece so it kind of goes clockwise uh, or it can go anti-clockwise and how we uh, 
like you know how we weave in the trauma informed lens into that is that uh, uh, you know uh, just because of, so for example if i have a talking piece in my hand and i am facilitating so i for share um, uh, about the topic uh, we are talking about and uh, then uh, i just do not like you know uh, without any notice i just do not pass it to the next person but beforehand we kind of like you know tell we give them the kind of predictability that how it is going to look like how it is going to happen uh, so sometimes it might happen that uh, you know somebody really uh, suddenly having the topping talking piece and might just feel that oh i was not ready or like and um, we have a certain values that you know it is okay to pass it is okay to some days not share so these are some things some principles and values that we work with uh, and we try to weave in the trauma informed lens as well into the circle processes and that is exactly how it is being planned and uh, how we are being trained on uh, so so yeah these are these are some of the ways uh, that we do it uh, uh just uh, wanted to like you know really uh, before uh, ending this i just wanted to share a really um, cute thing which uh, recently happened is that um, a a child uh, that we are working with uh, so when the first time uh, he came uh, so um, you know he had this thing of like you know if he sees a pen he would uh, like uh, he would try to act as if he has a knife in his hand and he wants to uh, kill you i'll kill you with the knife i'll kill you with the knife and uh, after like it's been almost 8 uh, to 9 months working with this child and uh, now when we uh, ask uh, that uh, oh do you have a knife in your hand uh, what do you do with the knife so so he says i cut a cake <laughs> so uh, i think uh, this kind of encapsulates the kind of work uh, that uh, you know uh, we try to do and the kind of really uh, small little shifts uh, that we kind of want to see um, yeah just that wanted to share that yeah thank you for that and i also want to say um i have you know you detailing the work that you do and specifically you know your philosophy with the circles and what not i have much respect for you tomoy and with the work that you're doing um it's it's right in line with my value system and so i may reach out to you at some point in the next year or two uh regarding my own research and uh, you know it shows that those principles like circular principles like uh you know they're universal you can go to any part of the country any part of the world and uh talk to folks and and especially if you know the the more tied they are to traditional beliefs or you know the indigenous side of things then you know that circular logic you know for resolving problems for resolving conflicts for restorative purposes for healing those principles are universal and i think that's uh really a testament to the great work that you do and the power of those uh you know of those circles so much respect to you for that um well, before we get too far that de- oh go ahead All right but so before we get too far along the road I want to make sure Alexa has some time uh so Alexa I turn the mic over to you it's all yours Thank you it's been so great to hear about everything you're doing and um it's just so important too so I really yeah appreciate what your organization is doing for all these kids and the families um so I have a question just 
so with your like adolescent um, teenage kind of population um, that experienced the gender sexual violence, have you ever seen um, or experienced them kind of start dabbling in substance abuse or other types of behavior that you guys have to address? Uh, as of uh, you, uh, the children. Yeah, like the teenagers, or um, even from the families. I know you had mentioned that one of the child, the father, um, had gotten an accident. He was an alcoholic um, and passed away. Um, so, with those types of things, like how do you help in those circumstances? Um, uh, so, uh, as of now, uh, till now, currently, we uh, haven't uh, any child. Uh, in our child protection unit who uh, has been uh, dependent on any substance. Uh, but so as to say, uh, the uh, communities that Shakti Shana works with, uh, there's a huge uh, addiction, uh, you know, um, um, addiction issue that is cropping up uh, and uh, has been since quite some time. And uh, uh, our team is really working uh, uh, you know along with the families along with uh, the uh, youth of the communities um, so um, so in their in in the kind of work that the community outreach workers are doing I think they have more direct uh, you know um, interventions with families where uh, children or maybe adolescents or young people are dependent on uh, alcohol or other substances uh, but um, if i if i talk about uh, like uh, like i mentioned earlier that uh, before uh, launching the uh, child protection unit, we had done one research in those five communities only. And, uh, you know, there was this really um, you know, fascinating uh, find there wherein, uh, wherein we could really see the in the conventional masculinity expectations and its relation with uh, addiction uh, and how this kind of you know resulting in conflicts at home uh, uh, which are uh, you know uh, and uh, you know substances uh, uh, it's again I think just uh, before when uh, you know uh, previously when where uh, I think we was talking about um, I think some um, substance uh, dependency uh, he was
Uh, both. I'm curious about both. Yeah. So if like, I know you said that your organization, you guys will do reflections and stuff. Um, so I'm just curious about that in that regard. Uh, I feel that, uh, you know, um, uh, one thing that really works for me uh, is that uh, uh, the kind of uh, culture which has been built in the organization. So it's like a very robust and uh, a very sensitive kind of a team that we have. So, uh, you know, this uh, mutual sharing, this peer sharing, and uh, this really, really works uh, uh, in my workspace and touch wood. Uh, so that is one of the things. But otherwise, uh, you know, organ organizationally, people who are working directly with survivors and their children. Uh, so we have, uh, you know, we have our mental uh, well-being uh, sessions uh, along with the mental health professional that is being uh, one of the provisions in the organizations, uh, in the organization that I'm working with in Shakti Shalini. And uh, apart from that, personally, Personally, uh, personally, I I used to paint. I haven't like I can't remember the last time I painted, but I used to like. Now, when you have asked me, I'm actually kind of reflecting that it's been so long that I haven't set. Uh, actually, I am not getting the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I I, I read. I read uh, quite a lot and uh, I think reading really helps me ground myself. Um, I uh, like to decorate uh, my uh, space a lot. So, you know, uh, just uh, decorating this uh, the personal space of mine, uh, that really helps me. And uh, those are kind of the activities which is really mindful for me as well. Like it's like mindfulness for me. Uh, so these are really, really uh, some few things. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm if it is like appropriate to say here, but uh, I do mindfulness while doing dishes. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, basically, uh, this is one thing you know that, that these are few things that I can think of. Otherwise, like I, I really love to cook. Uh, so cooking, uh, trying out new recipes, uh, uh, you know, uh, changing the look of the room. Uh, these are few things which really, really keeps me uh, like uh, keeps me away from uh, burnouts. Or uh, of course, when whenever burnout happens, like you know, the body tells you. <laughs> so that is when the uh, alarm beeps. Like okay, okay, okay. <laughs> now please slow down. So yeah, I just listen to my body. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, there is something really therapeutic about doing dishes. That's yeah. like, I look forward to that at the end of the night. It's like, okay, some peace and quiet. You can kind of reflect on the day. So that's great. It's task completion. And I tell you, like, nothing better than this. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I think this is a good time for us to open it up to the audience. Thanks, Alexa, for, for your uh, great questions. Um, so if you have a question uh, you can, or you want to chat with us, you can queue up in the caller like you saw Nico and Alicia uh, do briefly earlier. Or you can type it in the chat box, which we already have a couple. Uh, Kim asks, are, there, are the children that you work with runaways or how, do the, how does the organization come in contact with the children? 
so uh, sometimes uh, you know the cases uh, of uh, violence or domestic violence or gender sexual violence come in uh, from uh, directly from uh, police uh, and wherein the children are along with the uh, survivors so basically they are survivors children so they come along and one of the most interesting thing that we have seen and we have observed is that mostly uh, the girl child comes along with the mother who is the survivor so they keep the boy uh, in the home and they send off the girl child uh, this is one of the very interesting pattern that we have seen uh, and apart from that we have our helpline numbers so uh, we have uh, seven days helpline uh, services in Shakti Shalini uh, so pan India uh, helpline these are uh, and uh, through helpline we get cases and uh, through helpline also a lot of uh, you know survivors and their children come in contact with us uh, and apart from that, uh, we uh, like we are like we said that we uh, you know work in partnerships and uh, a lot of uh, other organizations, individual activists. Uh, um, you know they uh, do uh, refer uh, cases to our uh, organizations as well. Uh, so these these are few of the uh, these are few of the ways that uh, we get access to uh, the survivors and their children and apart from that of course the communities that we work with so you know uh, from there also we uh, have cases coming up so yeah um, uh, Sophia wants to know do you have any is there any eligibility guidelines for participation in the program or how maybe you know how do people pay for it uh, the shelter home yeah yeah uh, so the shelter home uh, is free uh, it is uh, basically a shelter home for uh, women in distress and uh, so we have uh, like when I was system of empowerment so uh, you know we have single mothers living in there we have uh, we have mothers who are not uh, married and culturally in India uh, you know these things are now getting 